is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. I want to talk to you about a dirty word. Now, it's a word that when people hear it, some people actually shudder. And and they just don't want to hear that word because it is so bad. Do I need to have my finger on the the button to get ready? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, you're going to have to dump out because (laughs) here's the dirty word. You ready? Waiting? Inflation. People do. Right. See, Mike, you're shuddering. Your shoulders went up. People do not want to hear that word. It is the latest dirty word, inflation. The latest numbers showing that inflation last month, 8.6% compared to a year earlier. It is now at a four-decade high, so we'll go in-depth into when inflation might slow down. Now, inflation's cousin, shrink inflation, is growing. More and more items in the store getting smaller and smaller, but not their prices. And the January 6th committee uh, used its primetime slot to lay out what many political experts say is a compelling case against former President Trump, but did holding the hearing in primetime work to engage the public? And the former president, Trump, says January 6th was not just a protest, but a movement. Is he right? Russia partnering with China to try to beat the impacts of the sanctions from the war in Ukraine. This is concern grows that the war could spark a major food crisis. The waits for the latest and greatest technology to hit your smartphone, that could take longer. The chip shortage threatening the release of the next generation of phones. And if you get the sniffles and you test negative for COVID, you might have it anyway. Doctors are finding more and more delayed positive cases. We'll talk about that. But we start with, and here's that word again, ballooning inflation. Bert Fleckinger is a retail analyst, managing director of the Strategic Resource Group. Uh, Bert, uh, my apologies that we do have to use that word on the air, but inflation, it is a dirty word now for many people, and it's not going to get better anytime soon, is it? No, and uh, Charles and Mike, to your important respective and collective points, with uh, shrinkflation uh, charging more uh, for smaller selling sizes, the sizes in the grocery stores have decreased 25 to 35% since last year. And the U.S. Department of Commerce reported food inflation today of close to 12%. And with food shortages uh, worldwide and farmers not being able to afford fertilizer and droughts of epic proportions from California to the Carolinas, uh, it's going to get worse from this crop year to next crop year, 2023. Was there some hope? I seem to remember people, you know, tweeting and and being on TV the last time this report came out saying, you know what, I I think we've hit the peak. I think it's going to come down from here, guys. Well, it didn't. And, and and you're, you're so correct. Charles and Mike is Janet Yellen and the people uh, in uh, the administration, both Republicans and Democrats, Yellen famously said she knew there was going to be a financial crisis in 2006, seven, uh, but didn't want to say anything to anybody because she didn't want to get anybody upset. And then this time she <laughs> said inflation was, transit- is, was transitory. And these academicians, uh, unlike the great people at uh, UCAL Davis, uh, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences and Cornell University College of Agriculture and Life Sciences have no basis of retail and and consumer and economic reality. And she should have been sacked 14 years ago instead of being rewarded for failure and continuing on for 14 more years. So who or what 
is going to save us from this galloping inflation? Uh, the feds, the Treasury secretary, uh, the president, the Congress, none of the above? None of the above. And interestingly, it's it's going to be the enlightened uh, national retailers learning from international retailers who, who are going to save us, specifically Aldi, USA, uh, Trader Joe's, uh, which was uh, uh, co-founded by our family members, uh, as well as Winco, Costco, uh, Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway, because uh, private label is only 20% of sales in the U.S. Uh, store brands uh, versus 55 to 70% in continental Europe, England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. So the cost of living in California with that dirty word inflation has increased by $10,000 since 12 months ago for a family of five. By buying store brands, a family can literally save $5,000 a year. And we're doing a book with Cornell, The Explosive Growth of Private Label Brands in North America. The family of uh, five can buy store brands instead of price gouging national brands in, that are uh, also doubly price gouging with shrink inflation. So that $10,000 cost of living gets cut in half or reduced by $5,000 by just converting from the national brands, which are inferior in quality, to the store brands, which are superior in quality. Bert Flickinger, retail analyst, managing director of the Strategic Resource Group. So a couple of years ago, which is when I think this all started, I went into a supermarket and I reached for a, a can of, of Coke, mm -hmm. and I thought that I had some kind of weird disease and my hand had gotten unusually large. You had whole cans. Because yeah. the, the can was so tiny. It was like this little tiny can of Coke. It was the first time I noticed that. Yeah. And that, I guess, the beginnings maybe of this shrinkflation thing yeah. that we talked about you know, in the last segment. Edgar uh, Dworsky is founder and editor of ConsumerWorld.com. Edgar, thanks for being with us, was that the beginning, the, the shrinking of the, of the soda cans? Because that's when I noticed things getting tiny, but the price certainly didn't follow. Well, in, in your world, <laughs> that was the beginning. In my world, it was back in the 1960s. Wow. And, and factually, it was probably in the 1950s. The lore is that it started in the days of the nickel candy uh, bar and the nickel candy vending machines that the chocolate makers told the vendors, you know, we have to raise the price. And the vendors, you know, went crazy. What are we going to do? Uh, our, our machines take a nickel. Someone came up with a bright idea. Oh, we'll make the chocolate bar a little smaller. <laughs> wow. So, so this goes back going into... going on decades and decades. This is part of, like, American history. <laughs> Absolutely. And they don't teach you that. <laughs> no, no, they don't. They don't they want don't. you to know. So does it happen every so often? Are there, like, different rounds of it? And we often see it at certain times when they do need to cut back, but they don't want to tell us because they want us to keep buying and keep buying the same price. Because I mean, there's a whole bunch of articles out there right now literally taking pictures of before and afters. And everyone is noticing... Um, the toilet paper, one brand, and the Gatorade bottle has now changed, and tissues, there's not as many in the box. Well, it, it tends to come in waves, and when we're in a period of inflation, like we are now, the waves are a little bit higher. I'm calling it a tidal wave at the moment. So, you know, you mentioned toilet paper, so, for example, Angel Soft toilet paper, um, and I just bought these packages, you know, last week or the week before in the store, 425 sheets on a roll in the old six-pack, 
the new one 320. So you lost over 100 <laughs> sheets on, on every roll. The packages look identical. I mean, the, these guys should go on America's Got Talent. I mean, they're magicians <laughs> to be able to do that. I, but there has to be a, a logical end to it. I mean, how much smaller can things shrink? Well, I I keep joking that if toilet paper keeps going the way it is, they're going to be the size of a uh, postage stamp roll. <laughs> well, that I, won't I, be good. At, at some point. But actually what happens is this. The makers, the original Charmin, for example, back in the 60s, the days of Mr. Whipple, and please don't squeeze the Charmin, had 650 sheets on a roll. It was downsized so many times. They had to come out with a new version. So they would call the new version a double roll. So uh -huh. they had to add back some of the sheets. And then it became a triple roll. And then it became a mega roll. And currently, P&G has super mega rolls. The super mega roll... Um, in the blue package, is down to th 366 sheets on a roll. That's still 300 less. Super mega is charm. less than old regular, yeah. <laughs> and they also try and sneak it past you in, like, clever marketing ways, too. That Like, one of these bottles, they say, oh, it's easier to grip because we put a little, like, divot in here, and it's right for your yeah, hand. Right. Well, yeah, but you didn't give me the rest of the stuff that used to be where that divot was. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, thought, I thought Gatorade was very clever coming up with, that kind of you know PR line to say, and I call it you know they gave it a waistline, you know, but they they took <laughs> out four ounces, going from 32 ounces down to 28. Price stayed the same. Now a lot of times you don't see the difference in the package. I mean, I had on my mouseprint.org website you know before and after pictures of some of these items, and one of the ones I was featuring this week was uh, post honey bunches of oats. They look identical side by side. One box is 14 and a half ounces. One is 12 ounces. They look the same. Only if you turn them sideways, do you see the new box is narrower than the old one. <laughs> wow. And you good. lost wow. almost two bowls of cereal in each of those. That was a 17% reduction in content. But if you're not paying attention to the net weight or the net count on paper goods, it'll go right by you. And you don't realize that you're basically, you know, paying a similar price but getting less for your money. Edward Dworsky, founder and editor of ConsumerWorlds.com, heard a podcast the other day saying that the one thing that has been immune to this, and it's because the owner says that it has to be, yeah. is that Arizona iced tea. It's still 99 cents. Really? For like 30 years. You know, I, I have a great idea, though, about this shrinkflation. Huh? This is a 90-minute show, right? <laughs> we just do it for 10 minutes, but we tell That's... everybody it's 90 and see what happens. <laughs> Right now, the January 6th committee laid out its case in primetime against former President Trump. Committee presenting evidence and testimony, it says, clearly shows the former president plotted to try to overturn the 2020 election, and his actions led directly to the insurrection. While many political experts commented the hearing was compelling, did it resonate with the voting public? With us as political communications experts, a USC professor, Dan Schnur. Thanks for being with us. So this did look and sound, at points at least, different than your traditional congressional hearing. Obviously, it was on the networks, minus Fox. Do you think it's going to resonate with people who maybe haven't been plugged into this the whole time? I think it has a very good chance of resonating with people. This has been such a complicated issue for many, and so much time has passed since January 6th of last year. But I think a lot of voters have just turned out because they're is so much to keep track of. 
And what the committee did yesterday, last night, very effectively, is they put together a very compelling storyline that's fairly easy to follow. If that's something they can continue for the next few weeks, that is the potential to have significant impact. But, but you know, the, the impression I got um, was that the committee, in the way it's structuring and laying things out, and and I think they're probably aware of the fact that they're not going to change many minds. It, it may resonate with people, but I think people have made up their minds at this point, and they're going to believe what they want to believe. The impression that I got, and tell me what you think uh, after watching it yesterday, was it was really aimed at prosecutors. It was really aimed at the Department of Justice, because what they did is they laid out, in effect, for the DOJ, what they think a, a really good case could and should be against people up to and maybe even including Donald Trump in terms of criminal charges. What do you think? Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And if you happen to see it, Benny Thompson, the city chair, was actually interviewed on CNN after the hearings had concluded, and they asked him that very question directly. Now, Congressman Thompson certainly couldn't say, yeah, we're hoping the Justice Department gets itself in gear. But he didn't deny it. He went out of his way to say that if the attorney general were watching or aware of the proceedings, he felt that there was very compelling information to be heard. So without verbally affirming it, I think he pretty much agreed with the case that you're just making. What was the part that stuck out to you the most? What did, what did you take away from it that you thought, oh, well, that's, that's new or that now has been painted in a way that is much more clear than before? A couple of things released it out to me. Uh, the first was the quote from Liz Cheney, from the unnamed staffer, who quoted Trump as having said that he agreed with what the crowd was saying about Mike Pence. Now, let's, let's give the former president at least a reasonable benefit of the doubt that he actually didn't want to see Mike Pence executed. But so high were tensions and passions running in the White House that day. I thought it was a very, very jarring quote. And then the second thing, I think by far, was the testimony from the young Capitol Police officer. That young woman was extraordinary. And if I had been stage managing yesterday's proceedings, I actually would have allowed her to speak for a much larger, a much longer period of time. Um, all in all, though, I think going back to what we said earlier, over the last 15, 16 months, there's been so much information, so many moving parts. It's just hard for most voters to keep track of. And I'd say as much as any particular moment or soundbite, so it's just a clearer story explaining what had happened on that day. Political communications experts and a USC professor, Dan Schnur. Thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Former President Trump made his opinions known during the January 6th hearing, took to his uh, Truth Social app to write that the committee didn't play any positive witnesses and statements and refused to talk of election frauds and irregularities. Uh, He also wrote that January 6th was simply not a protest and that it represented the greatest movement in the history of our country to make America great again. So does he have a point? Is the movement bigger than him? Matt Makowiak, Republican strategist and president of Potomac Strategy Group, is with us. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Is MAGA necessarily tied to Donald Trump, or is it uh, something that uh, will continue on for quite a while? And that's maybe some of what the Democrats in this hearing were warning, that uh, at least linked to this former president, uh, he's not going to give up the big lie. But what about these supporters who could call any election into question as, as things move forward? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of easy to get discouraged at the moment, at least as it relates to these election issues. You have you know, a large uh, segment of the electorate that has concern about whether elections are occurring uh, within existing you know election laws and whether they really feel like they can trust it. Uh, obviously, that erodes uh, confidence in our elections, in our democracy, in our government, in the legitimacy of our government. Uh, and while I do think there are, are, are legitimate questions, you know, looking back around 2020, I hadn't seen any evidence that would suggest that the result um, would be overturned or should be overturned. And, and that was the opportunity that Trump's legal team, uh, anywhere between, let's say, September of 2020, when some of these policy changes to the election were announced, uh, and let's say January when the swearing in occurred, of 2021, they, they had to prove that case. They had to do it in court. They had to do it with actual evidence. You know, tweets and memes are not enough to win in court. Um, and, and they didn't do that. And so, uh, look, you know, states are going to decide how they want to conduct their elections. We don't have national elections. We actually have elections that are conducted on a county by county basis, but state election laws rule the day. And so some states have tightened things up a little bit, uh, not allowing ballot harvesting, not allowing unsolicited mail ballots to go out making sure voter rolls are cleaned up periodically. Those are all, I think, improvements that can increase the confidence people have in the elections. Uh, but, yeah, we may be entering, uh, you know, an unfortunate, you know, short-term uh, period in, in, in the country where both sides, where the losing side, uh, ultimately never accepts uh, defeat. And, and that's a scary thing. Okay. Uh, but let's drill down a little bit more into Mr. Trump's uh, tweet where he says that, uh, the 6th of January represented the greatest movement in the history of our country to make America great again. What do you think he and, more importantly, his followers think that is? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, you know, look, there are two things here, and, and, and there, there are circles that have some overlap. There's Trump and there's Trumpism. Okay, Trumpism is sort of an American first, nationalist, populist movement. Uh, it's aligned with the Republican Party right now, but you can imagine a scenario where Trump's interests and the Republican Party's interests may not always be perfectly aligned. Um, and so, you know, I think most Republican uh, Trump has a standpoint as a success, politically as a failure. And the reason I say that is uh, he didn't get reelected. We lost the House. We lost the Senate. Uh, you know, we outrageously lost those two uh, U.S. Senate seats in, in Georgia in the special election in January when Trump basically conceded those seats by, you know, encouraging his own voters not to vote. So, you know, I think the opportunity that Republicans have going into 2024 after the midterms uh, is to run on a Trump Trumpism sort of uh, policy approach, um, you know, non-interventionism, rebuilding the military, uh, cutting taxes, cutting regulation, strong economic growth, enforcing border security laws, these kinds of policies, but not with Trump, with his baggage, which is with his lack of discipline, with the controversies. And I think Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida or any number of other Republicans, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas, lots of other people could assume that mantle. But that's what I think the big uh, competition is going to be in the Republican primary in 2024. And the big question is whether Trump runs. Right now, it certainly looks like he wants to run and that he plans on it. But we're still a ways away. We saw some shades of that among candidates in the primaries that he didn't endorse, right? If you weren't picked by yep. him, Donald Trump, they were still out there saying, well, you know, I still subscribe to all of uh, these kind of uh, wants and wishes and Trumpism yep. and listen to how I talk and present myself. He just didn't pick me, but you're getting the same thing. Yeah, and that's what's interesting about, you know, his endorsement approach and strategy is really kind of scattershot, right? There's really not a true line. It's almost entirely based on his own sort of estimation or evaluation of an individual. Have they been loyal to me? Have they always said what I would agree with? Uh, where are they on the 2020 election on viewing that? 
and, and honestly, that's kind of a ridiculous way to, to, to be, you know, making significant endorsement decisions with your political power for major offices. Uh, and what we've seen is in the U.S. Senate races, his endorsements have had success. Uh, what, what, what we've also seen is in gubernatorial races. Uh, he's not necessarily had that kind of success. Georgia being an example, Nebraska being an example, Idaho being another example. So, look, Trump remains the most significant figure in the Republican Party. Uh, I do think his power and his grip on the party is slipping uh, a little bit. You're going to see other people rise. Look, if he runs next time, he's the favorite to be the nominee. But I don't think it's impossible to imagine a scenario where he gets defeated uh, for the nomination. So, you know, we'll have to see kind of how things develop. You know, Republicans don't want the midterms to be about Trump. They certainly don't want it to be about January 6th. They want it to be about inflation and gas prices and the baby formula shortage, the crisis at the southern border, you know, the, all these issues. Uh, as long as it's about that, Republicans can have a major, massive wave of victory, uh, sweeping in 30 or 40 or 50 new Republicans in the House uh, and likely taking the Senate back, perhaps on a more narrow margin like 52-48. But, but look, there's a lot at stake here, and the next six months are crucial. And Trump really has a fairly limited role over the next six months. He's not on the ballot. Uh, he'll be endorsing in primaries. He'll be less involved in the fall or the general election because his political uh, popularity is, is less effective in a lot of places in general elections than it is in primaries. Matt McCoviak, Republican strategist, president of Potomac Strategy Group. Russia has been hit with massive economic sanctions because of the war in Ukraine. It's now trying to avoid the worst of it by getting friendlier with China. The two countries announcing a new bridge of special symbolic meaning, that's their words, in hopes of boosting trade. This comes as the World Trade Organization is warning the war could lead to a global food crisis. It could last for years. With us to break this all down is Andrew Jenks, professor of Russia, experts at uh, Long Beach State. Uh, Andrew, thanks for being back on the show. Let's start with the food crisis because this is something that was warned about early on. And then the longer this goes on, I think the more attention gets paid to it. Yeah, this is, uh, well, the uh, Putin surcharge on everything that we're seeing in the grocery stores. And uh, the food crisis is a result of uh, conscious policy by Putin to uh, blockade uh, the Black Sea and the exit from the Black Sea uh, for all the Ukrainian wheat and uh, corn and other agricultural products that uh, supply a huge chunk of uh, Africa and the Middle East with their foodstuffs. Uh, and this is having a rebound effect that is uh, increasing inflation throughout the world for for food. Um, you know, Ukraine was known, uh, rightly so, uh, in the 19th and 20th century as the breadbasket of Europe and, um, and of the world. And uh, now, of course, that breadbasket is not being shared. So am I right, then, that while this may and is going to create a food shortage crisis in underdeveloped parts of the world, here in the U.S., it will translate basically into you go to the supermarket and that, you know, package of pasta you pick up is going to cost you a lot more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing that's happening with oil. So if you take, you know, a certain quantity of a product, oil or wheat, out of the global markets, you create a uh, condition of shortage that will uh, drive inflation. And that's precisely what we're experiencing. There was some effort on the part of the U.N. and aid groups to say, OK, let's just let some of this grain out of the warehouses. Let's do a corridor. Let's get it to places that really, really need it, um, because there's all these aid groups that say we can't get our hands on enough things for all these people. Is there any movement on that or is it just the opposite where I've seen some accounts of Russian ships filled with this that they've taken and they're going to ports and saying, look at how good we are. We're going to give it to you. We're going to sell it to you. Yeah, there's a uh, on the one hand, uh, there's a kind of a cynical approach that 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 the story that you just mentioned embodies. 
but, you know, and, and, and another aspect of this, though, is that Putin wants the rest of the world to feel the pain uh, that Russians are feeling, in particular, Putin and the oligarchs are feeling as a result of these uh, sanctions that have been imposed. So this is a tit for tat sort of uh, vengeance strategy, in addition to uh, many other things on the part of Putin. Uh, and he doesn't care about the pain that he causes innocent people, either in Ukraine, obviously, or the rest of the world who have to pay this Putin surcharge when they go to the grocery store. So what does Russia becoming friendlier with China mean? Well, this is uh, basically the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, Russia and China have had a contentious relationship uh, along their very long border uh, for centuries. Um, so, you know, Russia may cozy up to China in order to establish a trade relationship that will provide an outlet for its um, uh, what it has to sell to replace what the Europeans aren't buying. But this is a dangerous game for Russia to play because I think that um, it's an unequal situation whereby China may be the, the side that gets far more out of this than Russia. Uh, just to give you an, an example of this, the Amur River Basin, which is the border that separates Russia from China, they've built this new bridge and they're celebrating it as a sort of uh, a friendship bridge that will promote economic ties and so forth and so on. But if you go to the Amur River Basin in the last 10 years, you'll see on the Russian side poverty, um, you'll see hopelessness, uh, a shrinking population. If you look just across the border over the Amur River, which is the border between China and Russia, you'll see skyscrapers going up uh, and you'll see flotillas of Chinese boats sucking raw materials, the, uh, the, the, the lumber, the oil, the iron ore, the precious metals out of Siberia and into China. And I think the only way that Russia benefits from this is that those oligarchs that uh, own all those resources, they'll get even more filthy rich than they've already been. Uh, but I'm not sure that this is going to be for the benefit of the Russian nation and its strength vis-a-vis -vis China. In the short term, though, with some sales of goods or oil and, and some trade with all these sanctions on them, that could help a little bit. I mean, what do we know about how the Russian economy is doing right now? There was some statement from the Kremlin the other day saying it's they're not affecting us as, as much as anyone had thought. Well, OK, if you thought it was going to be super awful and it's just kind of awful, it's still awful at the end of the day. Yeah, there's a certain amount of bravado and all that kind of talk, and I, I think we, we shouldn't take it too seriously. But one thing we should recognize is that I think that Russians have a much higher tolerance for deprivation uh, than Americans, for example. And that's something that Putin can count on. Uh, so that, um, you know, in this time of crisis, and let's be clear, Russian citizens, by and large, are rallying around the Russian war effort and are willing to make the sacrifices for it. Um, Russians are willing to give up some of their consumer, uh, you know, comforts, creature comforts uh, in ways I think that would be difficult for Americans or, let's say, British or French people to do. Uh, and so the amount of pain that Russia can suffer economically is much higher, relatively speaking, than the amount of pain that we might be willing to endure in the United States. So that's just something to keep in mind that the economic uh, impact may not be decisive in changing Putin's strategy of war with Ukraine. Andrew Jenks, professor and Russia expert at Long Beach State. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. People always want the latest, most up-to-date stuff, especially when it comes to smartphones to line up to buy the newest iPhone or Samsung Galaxy so they can get all the new cool features. Think it's time I get rid of my BlackBerry? <laughs> 
<laughs> Remember when we did that when they were discontinuing yeah. it? Uh, the guest was like, if you're one of the three out there that right. are on the old BlackBerry <laughs> system, sorry. Well, <laughs> it turns out the global semiconductor shortage is threatening the tech needed for the next generation phone. So are we doomed to keep our current phones longer than we want? Ian Shear is with us. He's editor-at-large at CNET. Uh, Ian, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? All right. So uh, I, I don't have a BlackBerry, but I do have an iPhone 10, and I'm keeping it because once I put a new battery in about a year ago, it seems to work just fine. I don't really think I need, you know, 10 cameras on my phone. The two I have seem to work just fine. But a lot of people are going to be upset, are they not, about not perhaps being able to upgrade as quickly as they'd like because these semiconductors are not as available as one would like them to be? Yeah, this is a problem that actually existed before the pandemic, but it got exacerbated by everything that went on. You may remember, for example, that during the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people started working at home. They needed new computers. A lot of us had bad computers at home. And so as a result, suddenly people were buying and buying a lot of stuff. And we ended up having even a worse situation happen. And then you've heard the car industry struggling to get enough semiconductors. You're hearing about all sorts of, I mean, it's hitting everywhere. And so, yes, of course, the tech that we expect to see in the fall, there is a very high possibility that we're going to have limited supplies of that stuff. And we've heard from companies like Apple and Samsung and others that they are aware that they are missing out on a lot of sales, billions of dollars in sales, because they can't meet demand for what their products are. Now, how does that translate to people who do want to buy them right away, do you think? Is it uh, you're not going to be able to get your hands on one for like a long time, or it's just going to be delayed another few weeks from the couple weeks that it usually takes to get to you anyways? It's a multi-trillion dollar question, and I'll give you an example. I had signed up to buy a, a computer part that was in very high demand two years ago, and I got on a list with a company, and they said, okay, we'll email you when that part becomes available. I've literally been on that list for over a year and a half. I just got that email. So it does take quite a while for some of these things to show up. That said, you know, there's a very high possibility that if you really want something, right, let's, let's say, for example, the PlayStation 5, which came out a couple of years ago, or the Xbox Series X, which also came out a couple of years ago, you may be able to find it because they've been out for a while. A lot of people who wanted it have taken it. But the new stuff, it's going to be really hard to find. Okay, so so clearly, as you pointed out, uh, not good news for the companies that are making this stuff and want to sell this stuff, understandably, but maybe good news uh, in a way for people, because maybe people will start realizing that they don't really need to you know, get a new phone every five months. I talked to some of the most prominent uh, e-waste and, and, and repair people in the country, uh, including one in San Luis Obispo. I fix it. And, and look, you're absolutely right. The part of what is happening is that we're having more conversations at CNET and with a lot of people about how do we extend the life of our devices. Now, it's a little harder when you don't have, for example, an Apple or a Windows device. A lot of those phones that are not iPhones don't get software updates as quickly as the iPhones do. But generally speaking, I, we are hearing that people are holding on to their phones longer because they really just don't have a choice. Did Apple also kind of realize that, you know, there are only a certain amount of people who use all the stuff on the new phones, which is why they will launch one <laughs> and then they'll go out and they'll do like the iPhone. What it comes in different colors and it's cheaper and it's smaller. But that one's more like just this is fine for most everyone. You know, buy that one. Yes. 
<laughs> but they have they have definitely they used to sell just one new iPhone every year and now they sell four or five depending on how you count it. So they definitely realize that there are different people who need different things. But also I think part of it is that while you may not use all of the parts of your iPhone, this is kind of like what it's like when you own a computer, right? There's there's a million things your computer can do, but you only need to use like five percent of it. Your five percent is different from my five percent. So they build it to do as much as it can so that way we are all able to benefit even though we have very vastly different things we need it for. Ian Sure is the editor-at-large at, large at uh, CNET. Okay, so you wake up with a scratchy throat, maybe you're a little hoarse. That was my Marlon Brando, by the <laughs> way. Uh, but not very good. The but. best actor goes, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's nothing serious. So you decide you take a, an at-home COVID you're better test. safe than sorry, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's negative. So you say, you know what? I'm negative. I don't have COVID, so I'm going to go to that party, and I'm going to meet my 150,000 friends, and we're all going to have a giant dinner together. Popular guy. Yeah. <laughs> Two days later, uh, you're still feeling this way. You test again. Oh, you're positive. Doctors and scientists finding out people who test immediately after symptom onset can test negative once, maybe even twice, even more before finally testing positive. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco, back with us. Doctor, thank you. So I guess one piece of advice is uh, those boxes usually come with two, so we should probably be using the two at least. Exactly, um, Mike. And uh, having a negative test in the era of Omicron is not a go pass. And I think people are realizing that. And I've heard of many of my colleagues who've had that exact uh, similar situation happen. Now, why is that happening? Is it because uh, the virus itself, the Omicron uh, variant, takes longer until it registers? You get enough of a viral load to register in a test. Is it because more people uh, are vaccinated and our immune systems are responding differently? Is it both? Is it something else? Uh, Like everything in life, Charles, it's probably a little bit of everything. And I'll just go through the two main hypotheses that people think right now. The first relates, as you pointed out, to the virus. We do know that Omicron is a little bit different from Delta or other variants before in that it predominantly starts replicating in the large airways, so in the lower airways. So when you swab your nose, you're, you're less likely to get early uh, replication. So in, in that respect, some people have been combining throat and nose swabs. It's not officially recommended in the U.S., but in places like the U.K., they do it. The second uh, box or bucket is has to do with the immune system. And in an era of vaccination, a lot of people have a primed immune system. So when, you, when it sees just one or two viruses, it, it uh, reactivates very quickly. There's a fast reflex. So you start to feel sick before the virus uh, is in sufficient quantities to be detected by the antigen test. And that's why when people are negative on the antigen and they get a PCR, it tends to figure it out earlier. And that's because the PCR can pick up just a couple. The antigen test needs more than 100,000 viruses to be positive. Are you a fan of the, I don't know, let's call it swab where it hurts approach? If it's your throat, then swab your back of your mouth. If it's your nose that's giving you a lot of trouble, then then put it there. No, I mean, I'm, I'm generally a fan of sampling both nose and throat. Uh, I know it's a little bit unorthodox and has a little bit of an ick factor, but um, that's probably quicker. But I'm also a fan of the repeat testing, but keeping your mask on, particularly if you live with vulnerable folks uh, who are negative uh, until 
uh, you figure out for sure you don't have COVID. So uh, let me ask a question that, that may be a little bit out there, but but I'm I'm curious what you think. If a lot of people are testing, you know, negative, uh, but they really do have COVID and perhaps they don't do as you've suggested, you know, keep testing until eventually they get positive. But they test it one time and they say, oh, it's negative. I don't have COVID. And then, you know, their symptoms maybe go away in a couple of days because they don't have a particularly severe one. And then years later, they develop something that might be what we're now starting to call long COVID. How would we necessarily know that whatever they got was related to their earlier COVID infection? Because we don't even know how long antibodies last. That's right, Charles. Um, I think that that's the problem with the diagnosis right now of long COVID. You have to have a history and a documented history of a positive test. So there are loads of people who didn't get tested, say, early in the pandemic and even now, um, and they have these symptoms later on. No one can really call it long COVID in our current definition. There isn't a great definition. Maybe in the future, they'll develop uh, you know, sort of more uh, biochemical testing that will figure out if people have long COVID. But for now, that is certainly a limitation. What about the um, idea that you can just keep catching this again and again and it's going to happen to us a bunch of times? That probably isn't a great thing for our bodies. Um, you know, no, it, it's not. I mean, exposing yourself um, constantly is not a great idea because we don't know what's going to come and how you're going to react. Um, and then, you know, I think testing yourself frequently um uh, you know, you, you have to stop at some point. Um, and, you know, I would say that after three to four days of symptoms and you're negative, it's probably true. In fact, if you look at the manufacturer's official instructions, they recommend testing at least two times over three days, 24 hours apart. Um, but we're finding that people sometimes need more than that. So uh, the negative test isn't that reliable. Positives, though, tend to be? Yes, positives are very reliable right now. If our levels of virus in the community go down to very low, then you're going to increase the number of false positives. But for right now, pretty much everybody who's positive is a real positive. Um, And, you know, I think um, that is really what we're faced with. But it's a tricky business. We also do the dance of, you know, just automatically always thinking it's COVID and because we've forgotten about colds and flus a little bit or allergies and everything. But if it's multiple days of symptoms and even if you're at home isn't showing anything, then the PCR is still probably a safe bet just because that's going to be your confirmation, yes or no? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think there's several reasons to think about making sure it's COVID. The first, of course, is if you live with someone vulnerable or you're getting on a flight or like Charles, you're going to meet 100,000 of your closest friends. But um, I think there's another reason, and that's so you can get Paxlovid. If you had really serious consequences or serious risk of getting sick and you want to avoid going to the hospital, and we certainly want you not to go to the hospital, um, getting a PCR or an early diagnosis would mean that Paxlovid will work better. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist, uh, UC San Francisco. This huge dinner parties yeah, well, and just at the be, Feldman Estate. Yeah, and just to be clear, it wasn't 100,000. It was 150,000. even more. <laughs> just, just to be clear. <laughs> All right, that's in-depth for uh, the week, yeah? Friday? Okay. Uh, yeah.